Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. If you don't have a Bible uh, in your possession, you don't have an app that you can access, you can find a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love that to be a gift from us to you. Uh, we encourage you to take that home with you at the end of the service. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know where the book of 1 Thessalonians is located. And then as we make our way through and look at different books, if you want to write those down, you want to go back to the table of contents, just know that the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. And again, this morning we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Man, I, I don't know about you, but it has reached that time of year, it's reached that year or whatever. I don't normally keep track of all these things, but I know it because my mailbox tells me it's true. I, I begin to receive a number of political ads, uh, which normally travel the distance from my mailbox to the trash can without ever being read. But nevertheless, I gave myself an opportunity to read some of these things yesterday. You know, these things are actually quite informative. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever read any of these. Uh, I received one yesterday from a, a candidate who told me that the Second Amendment is under attack, and apparently no one's voting uh, or running against this person because or they, when they did market research, they determined people in my neighborhood are so incredibly pro-Second Amendment that if they were to waste money sending ads to us, they, they would be summarily thrown away. So he is my candidate, according to market research. So nobody, nobody I didn't get anything against this guy. I did, however, the next one that I got in the mail uh, had this, this, this statement that says, this individual, and we're not endorsing any candidates, so I'm not going to read their names, and if you know anything about politics, you know who these people are, and you know way more than I do already. You're, that's right, you can just play the piano right now because you're so in the know. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you have a cell phone, if you'd silence that, would be super helpful. I have, like, intense preaching ADD, so when, like, piano plays or... I don't see Larry, but like when the rooster went off that day, I just, it was so incredibly distracting. Like still it's distracting to think about. Uh, and, and Leanne is still giving him a tongue lashing over that, and so I just try and bring that back up occasionally, keep them in therapy. Anyway, so it says that, it says this individual voted against life-saving body armor for law enforcement, so I'm already angry, right? And then it said, and then 30 days later, he voted to raise his own pay, and I'm thinking, how can I get that? And so I want to raise my own pay, but I don't understand this idea of, of voting against something that would keep our law enforcement safe. And so I'm, I'm incensed, and, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? Well, then I, then I get the next one. This is, don't be fooled about these negative attacks against me. And I'm really confused. And he has all of these endorsements across the bottom, and it says, look, he's, he's conservative, he's against uh, government mandates, which I think to get into office right now, you have to either be pro or con on that pretty decidedly. Uh, he, got a, he got an A rating from the NRA, which, okay, and so it's back in that Second Amendment thing. He supports efforts about the wall. I don't know how I feel about that. He's a defender of individual property rights. I'm definitely for that. I own property. He's a decorated combat veteran. I love that. He's staunch pro-life. I'm in. But the other guy said he's a rotten, no-good loser. And so I'm so confused, and he won't take my phone calls anymore. Like, his office says, quit calling us. What we recognize in some sense is this is the situation the Apostle Paul finds himself in. He's there in Thessalonica, and there are a group of people 
that are attacking him, and they're attacking him, and in so doing, they're completely discrediting his message. And so they're going to the church there, and they're saying, listen, who you've understood Paul to be, how you've understood him to interact, and what you've heard from him, you just need to throw that out. Because what they've come to realize is that if they can discredit Paul, if they can discredit him, they can completely discredit his message. And so what he does all through chapter 2 is he's working to reestablish who they've known him to be. And in some sense, we understand this, that because our message is tied to who we are, because our message, how we communicate the gospel, is tied to who we are, we need to know that who we are is tied to who he is. We need to understand that, that, that our message is tied to who we are, and because we know that, we need to know that who we are is tied to who God is. Would you pray with me towards that end this morning? Father, I pray that as we read your word, as we study your word, that we would not come to this lie that says who we are is tied to all the sum of who we have been, but that in Christ, who we are is tied to who you are, tied to your character, it's tied to your forgiveness, it's tied to the redemption we enjoy in Jesus, it's tied to the undergirding that we receive through your Holy Spirit, it's tied to the encouragement that we receive in him. Who we are is determined by who you say we are. And so I pray that we would move forward in the security of that, and that as such, that we would be men and women on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us not to be shaken. Help us not to lose ground. Help us not to yield, but help us to continue to push on in boldness that comes from knowing that who we are is tied Father, to who you are. God, I pray that you would be at work in this place and work in our hearts. God, that we would have a sense of your love for us. God, we love you and we submit this time to you. In Christ's name, amen, amen. You'll remember that as Paul was writing, he's, he's engaging in this letter and he's writing to this uh, group of of believers there in Thessalonica, that he described his manner of engagement as being uh, one of boldness, one of boldness. They're, they're not engaged in just kind of, just, I don't want to hurt your feelings, I don't want to do these things, I don't want to cause any problems. Like he's, he's coming in there with a degree of boldness, and what we've recognized that his boldness is tied to what God has done in him, not his ability to overcome his impediments. And so he begins to talk about this in, in terms of kind of the lies spoken against him and the truth of how he's engaged. And so what we see in verse 3 are these are the lies spoken against him. And what we see in verse 4 and moving on is the truth of how he's been. So he describes, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Notice the three things there. It's error, impurity, and deception. This is what was being said about Paul. He engaged in error. But first what we recognize is that he begins to describe it in terms of an appeal. Now what is an appeal? An appeal is asking you to do or to believe something. It's asking you to do or to believe something. So if I walk into a room and I'm strictly just giving you information 
and I'm building up your knowledge of a thing. And so we're describing math. And I'm like, let's just break this down to the base principles. And when we move beyond this, we'll find some engineer. There's no short number of them in this room. And, and they can expand upon that. And so we get in and we say, listen, a one plus one is, and everybody says, some of you are going to need the rudimentary. And so we have numbers, and they're base units, and we can add them or subtract them. We add them, they get bigger. When we subtract them, unless we're subtracting a negative number, they get smaller. Mind blown. This is already abstract for me. But if we're just informing people, then we're growing them in a knowledge of something. But when we are making an appeal, we want them to do something on the basis of that knowledge. Now, when you communicate the gospel, when you communicate what the Bible says, you are only ever meant to be engaging in the realm of appeal. Do you understand this? Like when you're having a conversation with a coworker, when you're having a conversation with your child, with your spouse, with your friend, with your neighbor, with a person you disdain, and you begin to speak about Jesus, whether you want to or not, you are engaging at the level of appeal. Because what is happening in that engagement is you are moving in cooperation with God's Holy Spirit, which according to John 14 is moving in their hearts in John 16, and it's convicting them concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So you're over there talking about the difference Jesus has made in you and why your eating habits are different and how you wake up differently and how you work differently and how you spend your money differently and how you come to different conclusions all on the basis of your relationship with Jesus. So what you're doing in there is you are, whether you recognize it or not, it doesn't matter, you are making an appeal because you represent Jesus and his spirits at work in their heart. And he is calling them to himself. This is what Paul's doing. He says, when I was there and I'm describing my manner of life and my engagement, I was making an appeal to you. I'm cooperating with the Holy Spirit who is the paraclete, the comforter, the encourager, and he's at work in your heart convicting, convicting you concerning sin, death, and righteousness. Like He wants you to know these things, that life, your life, your eternal life is hanging in the balance. So he says, this message, this appeal, this entreaty, this begging, this 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 this." request that you would submit yourself to these things. You have to know it comes from a place, not of error, not of impurity, not of deceit. So let's look at error. They said that when Paul said these things, he was, he was making mistakes. He, he had something in his message, something in there that contained something wrong. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just turn over to the left a little bit. We see the the, the, the paradigm, or we see the, uh, really the method of engagement that Paul uses when he goes from town to town, described in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. They love lofty speech and wisdom. Like there were no movies in those days, and so people would sit around and they would gather around to hear somebody get out there and wax eloquent. They wanted to hear somebody say something that would blow them away. Paul says, when I came to you, I purposed, I did this on purpose. I did not engage in these things. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but were in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's pattern of engagement was such that when he went into a place, he opened up the word of God and he says, this is who God is, this is what God has done, do you want to know him? It's who God is, this is what God has done, do you want to know him? He's making an appeal. And those that are around and they're saying, listen, Paul is engaging in all kinds of errors. He doesn't really understand how these things work together. There's something deficient in his mind. And then they move to the second one and they say, Paul is engaging in the use of impurity. He's diluted things. He's changed things. He's altered things. He's not, he's not departed from the truth altogether, but he's taken a truth and he's moved it just slightly, just ever so slightly to the side so that it might be more palatable, so that it might be more engaging. Look at how Paul addresses it again in the book of 1 Corinthians, this time in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. The Corinthians are all kinds of messed up. If you're ever in a church and you think, my church is messed up and I don't know what to do, read 1 Corinthians and you'll begin to think, my church is fantastic, I don't know how it could get better. They're messed up, they're terrible, and everybody looks around and says, we're not so bad. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, I delivered to you, I brought to you that which is of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You'll remember when Paul wrote the Galatians, essentially the Galatians had come into this understanding that it was good for them to have this understanding that Jesus did in fact die for their sins, that he was raised in the overcoming of sin and death, but it didn't stop there. See, the Galatians had said essentially, these are good things, these are valuable things, but what I need to add on top of this is something for me to do. And if I can engage in this something for me to do, then I can have a faith that is incredibly rock solid, that is secure, that is steadfast, that is so much better than the simple faith that merely believes Jesus died for sin. Now that's impurity. Boy, that's an impurity that is impregnating our culture. That is, a, that is an impurity that the enemy works over and over and over and again in our minds. That is an impurity that we long to believe because it is an impurity that takes faith from the realm of God and it places faith in my hand. It's a faith I can do something. It's a faith I have some control over. And let me tell you, as comforting as that might be, that's a terrifying thing. Because if it is a faith that you have control over, then it is a faith that has nothing to do with God. Their accusation of Paul is that he's engaging in impurity. He's taken this faith once for all, handed down to the saints, and he's merged it with something else. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, I determined to know of what is of first importance, that Christ died for sins and that he was raised again. The basic gospel is the only gospel that's necessary. Lastly, he says, my appeal wasn't based on an attempt to deceive, an attempt to deceive. You see, in Paul's day, these, 
men, uh, these women, these people that would travel around and engage in lofty speech and wisdom, they didn't do so just because they liked for people to hear from them. They did so because they liked the money, they liked the attention, they liked the groupies that they were able to amass and bring unto themselves. And so essentially they roll into town and they say, you know, hear ye, hear ye, or whatever, whatever form of speech draws people to the crowd. You know, come get some snake oil, come get some snake oil. And so they're, they're trying to get people, like, it heals everything from the broken heart to hemorrhoids. Like, this stuff's amazing. Watch, you can even drink it. Nobody? We had this guy that came, uh, knocked on our door when I was in college that had a cleaning solution. And so he walked out to the front of my car, which at that time was covered in love bugs, which were a blight from the city of Houston, why no one should ever live there. But anyway, so he comes to the front of my pretty nasty Honda Civic, and he's like, check out how awesome this stuff is. And he sprays it, and he wipes just this little bit that reveals this awesome silver color that I didn't know my car still had. And the rest of it is just covered in love bugs. And he's talking about how good, great, and wonderful this stuff is. And I kid you not, he pulls the thing out of the, out of the uh, spray bottle, and he licks it. I'm pretty sure it was just saliva in there. So I started just spitting on my bumper and wiping, but I never got there. Never happened. But I was impressed. I was drawn in, and we bought like a case and a half of this stuff. And so what we see in these folks is they have this attempt to deceive that is built on the desire to create followers for themselves. Now, Paul's already encountered this. In Acts 13, verses 6 through 12, we read about Paul, and he's on the island of Cyprus, and he meets one such individual that's engaging in this way. It says, and when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So we already see the stage is set for conflict. This guy is a false prophet. It says, but Elamus, the magician, for that's Bar-Jesus' name, opposed them. Look at what he wants to do. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. All he wanted to do was lead this guy from being interested in following the gospel to following what he had to say. But Saul, who was called Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul knew how to handle this type of a spiritual attack. And so he speaks this to this man. This man is blinded, and he has to be led around. And I want you to see the result. Verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. Listen to why he believed. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Do you notice there what converts this man? It's not the fact that he saw a perfectly sighted individual, this Bar-Jesus, this Elimus. It's not that he saw him go from sighted and eloquent to being blinded. This amazed him. But what converted his heart, what changed his life, what led him to believe was Paul and Barnabas' teaching of the gospel. They weren't seeking to engage in error, impurity, or deceit. They were seeking to put forward Jesus. They're seeking to put forward Jesus. Paul has to convince this church in Thessalonica that his message and who he is 
are on the same path. So he defends the manner in which he engages. Now look at verse 4. We begin to see the positive side of this. Paul writes and says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Do you notice what he does there? It's this, it's this really amazing move that in some sense, Paul knows they know him. He knows that they are familiar with who he is and how he's operated. But what he does is he begins to let them know that he bases his uh, beliefs about himself not on how they feel about him, but on how God has declared him to be. This is so incredibly freeing and corrective for us. That we would primarily see ourselves not on the basis of how people describe us, but first and foremost, according to who God has said we are. And that we would live in accordance with that. You see, because our message and who we are are inseparable, so we have to base who we are on who we are tied to and how he is. Paul says, just as we have been approved by God. Our appeal doesn't come from these things because we have been approved by God. Now, when he says this idea of approved, it's not that God had this kind of heavenly treadmill or heavenly assembly line where he's just kind of running images of people through and he's got a rubber stamp. He's like, approved, 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 rejected, approved, approved. Oh, come back here, rejected. This is, this is madness. This is nonsense. And it's not as if every person who stands to teach the Bible gets an automatic approval. It's just not. We have this understanding that there's this, you know, don't speak out against the Lord's anointed. Don't do damage to the Lord's anointed. So anybody that takes upon themselves the moniker, the understanding that I am the Lord's anointed, you can't speak against. That's a devastating engagement to get into. And it creates all kinds of power systems that lead to damage and abuse in the church and in nonprofits. And we wonder how people who are, who are pastors, we wonder how who, people who take the, the name missionary and go to foreign countries and end up abusing people and end up gauging in all of these things. And, and what we find is that people gather around them and say, don't say anything against the man of God. Do you think men and women of God, men and women of God are any less likely to engage in sin? Do you think that the enemy has any less design on the men and women who stand and preach or engage in ministry? See, if the enemy can bring down a pastor, if he can bring down a missionary, if he can bring down somebody working in a crisis pregnancy center, if he can bring down someone of influence, then he can destroy everybody underneath them. Paul's not using this as a trump card. Paul's using this as a reflection of his heart. He says, God has approved, look what he says there, us. Isn't that amazing? You see, Paul's not in the middle of this saying that I am approved. If you'll remember, if you go back to the beginning of this letter, he says, it is Timothy, it is Sylvanus, and it's Paul. So what he says in here is that Paul, in the midst of walking in accountability and walking in transparency with these men, they have been approved by God. They have been tested. They have submitted themselves to that test. And the approval of God currently rests upon them because of this past approval process they've engaged in. And what does that look like for Paul? It's looked like beatings. It's looked like accusations. It's looked like failures. It's looked like hunger. 
It's looked like being lost at sea. It's looked like being absolutely brought into this crucible of faith and having all the pressures of the world come upon him so that in the midst of these things, he might be found faithful. God takes him to the absolute place of complete brokenness so that in that place and at that time, he might be useful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what's gone into his approval. Something so incredibly important for us to hear right now. If you have been saved by Jesus, where you sit today, you are approved. If you have been saved by Jesus and his spirit is within you and it's at work in your heart, where you sit, where you listen to this, you are approved. Friend, that's so vitally important because you've been approved to do something specific. Paul says, we have been approved by God and entrusted with his gospel. See, God hasn't just approved you so you could have a better sense of self-esteem and a better sense of, I just really love who I am and I'm very secure in my identity. God has approved you for the purpose of entrusting you with his gospel. This word here that Paul uses for the idea of entrusting really paints the picture of God has faith in you. No, we're very comfortable, I know, speaking from the design of saying, I have faith in God, and it's my faith in God through Jesus Christ that saves me. But literally what he says here is that I've been approved, and you've been approved, and then God has faith in you with the gospel. From your place of approval, from the place where God has tested you and he has tried you and he has given you his Holy Spirit to be alive and at work in your heart. He has met that process of approval and then he's walked over to you and he has entrusted his gospel to you. So if you're in high school, you're in junior high school, you're in elementary school and you know Jesus, when you walk down the hallways of your school and how you engage with your teacher and how you engage with your peers and how you engage with your parents, you are doing so as someone who has been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is weighty. So if you are a parent, if you are a spouse, if you are a grandparent, if you are single and you have no one in your life, but you go to the grocery store, everyone you come into contact with, you have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ for someone else. The appropriation process of approval comes through the blood of Jesus. He makes you approved. And in so doing, he makes you holy. And in so doing, he gives you the gospel. And he asks you to reflect over the course of your heart of who have I been entrusted with the gospel for? For whom have I been entrusted with the gospel? You think about that. You think about that when you lay down at night? Do you think about that when you wake up in the morning? Do you think about that as you make your summer plans? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Everywhere our God takes you over the course of your life, there is someone for whom you've been entrusted with the gospel. Paul looks at this church in Thessalonica, and his heart is breaking because he knows he's been entrusted with the gospel for them, and he knows they've come to believe things about him that aren't true. And so he's seeking to refute that, and he's seeking to drive that back. And so he tells them, because we know these things are true, and because we know the attacks we suffer, so we speak. So we speak. 
The gospel requires that we engage in speech. The gospel does not require we sit back and we're polite and, and, and we're just approving of everything that goes on around us. But the gospel requires that we engage with things we disagree with. That we say to men and women who, who, who say things that we know that are contrary to the gospel. Friend, if I could just stop you right there. Do you know that? It's hard. It's difficult and it's costly for us and it will cost us friendships. It will cost us relationships. But we have no choice. Your life is an appeal that God delights in playing out in your community. Because through your life and the way you live and what you say and who you engage with and where you go, God is making his appeal through you. He has approved you and he has entrusted you for the good and the benefit of everybody you come into contact with. Think about it. Think about what Greenville, Texas, what Hunt County could look like. Think about what L3 Harris could look like if every man, woman, and child who names the name of Jesus would speak. Speak. It's not just inviting people to church. Hey, come to church with me. It's not inviting people to youth camp. Come to youth camp with me. It's not being kind to people. It's not giving them $5 and you pass them on the road. It is communicating the gospel and how you live and what you say he says because these things are true so i speak not to please men now this is something paul beats this drum day and night galatians 1:10 galatians 1:10 he said for am i now seeking the approval of men or of god and he says if i'm still seeking the approval if i'm still seeking to please men i am not a servant of the lord man that hurts how much temptation do you face on a normal day? You're stuck in this situation and you recognize you can keep your mouth shut and you can keep peace or you can speak up and you know it's going to create conflict. If I could just be totally honest, I am conflict averse. My family was raised in like... I'm sure my family at some point fought in wars, but we are peacemakers. We are peace maintainers. We hate conflict and we love engaging in lightly passive-aggressive engagement. Ooh, it's some passive-aggressive engagement that is super conflict. We don't tell people they've hurt our feelings. We don't tell people that we're upset with things because we do not have feelings. <laughs> At a family level, not my family level, but like extended family, the people that I'm not actually related to, and so I feel comfortable speaking ill of in this setting. Can we go offline real quick? <clears throat> Sorry, Mom, Dad. Oh, i got a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> There's something in us that wants to please people because we don't want to be disliked. I get that, and I recognize that, and that's something at work in all of our hearts. And I'm not talking about being annoying or frustrating or being difficult. What I'm talking about is loving people enough to engage them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we take seriously the commission that we've been entrusted with the gospel, when we encounter these situations where it would be easier to keep our mouth shut, we will recognize that it would be easier, but it would be faithless. It'll be easier, but it'll be disobedient. It'll be easier, but it won't be righteous. We won't seek to please men. We will seek to please God. Look at how Paul says we know. He says, listen, we don't engage in this, me, Timothy, and Sylvanus. We don't engage in this in seeking to please men, <clears throat> but to please God. And God is the one who tests our hearts. Boy, that's a weighty thing to hear. That the rest of this day, the decisions you make, that how you engage the remainder of this week, knowing 
that your heavenly Father, when he sees how you engage, sees how you act, he is testing your hearts. And I think we have this realization that our hearts often long to please ourselves, right? You have this sense that your heart just really wants to be satisfied, that your heart really wants to just be happy, your heart really just wants to be left alone. We are reminded that if you are in Christ, friend, that God has given you a new heart. This is a new heart God has long promised to give to his people. Hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, we we read these words in Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. The prophet writes, speaking of God, and says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleaned from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God has cleansed you. He has made you to be clean. And then he goes on. He says, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Some of us, we beat ourselves up over and over and over again. We see the past failures of our hearts. We see the past failures of our motivations. And so when it comes into this idea of how should I be and how should I interact and what should I do, what the enemy does is he comes alongside of us and he says, your heart's really not very clean. Your manner of engagement really isn't very righteous. But what we have to counter that with is the word of God that says, God has created in me a clean heart. And he has given me a new identity. And he has helped change who I was and transform me into who I am now. Let's think about this from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. It's not out of the realm of possibilities to consider that oftentimes when Paul would come into an area, what would travel with him or what would come in his wake are all the stories of who he was. And so along with the he's engaging in error, he's engaging in impurity, he's engaging in deceit, people say, listen, I don't know what you know about this guy, but he's bad news. Like he had Christians put to death. He was complicit in the murder of many men and women. Hate, heartache, and anger live in this man's heart. So you just need to be careful because he's not all he's made himself out to be. So Paul hears every city that he goes into the message of who he used to be and how he used to engage. And when he hears that message and he hears that reminder, he knows those things are true. He really was complicit in the murder of men and women. He really did delight in seeing people put to death. He really did have hate in his heart for other men and women. And he really was working hand in hand with Satan to put to death every Christian he could get his hands on. He knows these things are true. Our enemy excels at using true things in your past to change how you feel about your present, to make you inadequate for the future. You see that. You're doing well, you have some spiritual victory, you've overcome some sin, and the enemy reminds you what a hapless loser you are. This person you've offended that you've not gone to, this sin that you formerly engaged in, 
And he begins to subtly tell you, this is really who you are. Your heart's not new. It's the same old heart with a thin veneer of holiness. But that's not really who you are. We counter the lies of the enemy about our past that impact our present because we know our future belongs to the Lord. He has redeemed, he has changed, he has altered our past. Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 43 and 25. He's speaking of the Lord. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. See, coming back to our central idea, because our message is tied to who we are, we need to know that who we are is tied to who he is. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We're thankful for you, for the forgiveness we enjoy in your son Jesus. God, I pray that any in this room who do not know you, they have not submitted themselves to you. They believe that who they are is connected to who they've always been. That who they are puts them beyond the reach of salvation and forgiveness. God, that they would come to understand that who you want them to be is your child, the recipient of your forgiveness. That before they drew breath, it was in your plan and purpose to redeem them, to extend to them salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I am he who blots out transgressions and who remembers your sins no more. God, help us to be a people, men and women and children, who love you and who see ourselves as you see us and so move forward in faithfulness and trusted with the gospel. God, would you stir in our hearts? Would you change our lives? Would you cause us to come into renewal in the person of your son, Jesus? And we pray these things in his name. Amen.